and welcome to another episode of Mind on the Game, a event podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with men and women from across the sporting landscape, discussing their sporting journeys, their mental health, and how they keep their mind on the game. This episode of Mind on the Game is with an old university friend of mine and someone who has been helped massively by the sport of football throughout his life. He is my old mate, Patrick McColgan, and this is the first time I'll have seen Pat in over five years, which is crazy to think about. Pat works in sports marketing for a football sponsorship agency, and he's also a part-time football journalist, writing for the likes of These Football Times and Libero magazine. Pat was also in the men's first team at the University of Sussex, our alma mater, and has played amateur and semi-professional football prior to it and in his adult life. Dressing room culture, toxic masculinity, fitting in, and much more are all on the menu. Here's how this episode of Mine on the Game went down. Pat, welcome to Mine on the Game, mate. It's been a bloody long time since I've seen you. I want to say third year of uni, second year of uni, which was probably the last time I saw you at Varsity, maybe, when you came back. Yes, mate. Yeah, hi. How you doing? Yeah, it's been ages, mate. I couldn't believe how long it was. Both seeing you and leaving uni, like, it's been ages. <laughs> mate, um, I thought about this the other day, and I was like, it's been almost eight years since Freshers. Yeah, so it's been six years since I left uni. So it must be about six, five or six years since yeah. I saw you. Yes. So it's been five years since I left uni and eight, yeah, seven or eight since I was yeah, in yeah, yeah. That just feels like an absolute, especially because of COVID, this feels like an absolute millennium ago. Yeah. I think of like the freshers now at uni and I feel so sorry for them because of, it's just not the same, is it? It's horrible. Yeah, it's yeah. horrible. I'm thinking about it this week and honestly, I don't think I can remember the first time we met. It might have been Johnny Skelly's 20th birthday when I met a lot of you mm-hmm third years when I was in second year mm-hmm. or it might have been an Oceana cheese room I can't really remember yeah man it's a blur in it <laughs> <laughs> I would say I was thinking about this as well I'd say it was probably Oceana do you reckon just because that's where you meet a lot of people yeah, for true. the first time and become friendly with them quicker than you would usually you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. we'll get on to it but I think that's how yeah, I met yeah. Matt Cheatham as well like yeah, 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 with yeah. you that's in like how I met Matt Cheatham 3am <laughs> in a smoking area of the Oceana you go yeah she's my mate Matt yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah exactly yeah that's how you meet everyone really isn't it all right, man, we've got a lot to get through, so mm. shall we crack on? Yeah, mate, let's do it. Let's start mine on the game, mate, with mm-hmm. your football journey. Mm-hmm. So I ask every guest about this. So tell me how you discovered football, who took you to your first kickabout or your first match, and how did you fall in love with the game? I kind of discovered football in about 1998, so just around the time of the World Cup in France. So I was about six years old at the time. And then that kind of piqued my interest. And then over the next few years, I really got into it. So I'm a big Arsenal supporter. So the first game I ever remember watching is the UEFA Cup final against Galatasaray in 1999. So Arsenal lost it on penalties. But yeah, I remember that was the first Not a great record game. with European finals. Nah, terrible. Arsenal, yeah. But yeah, let's, let's, uh, <laughs> let's forget about that. That's another pod. That's another pod. Forget about that for the time being. Yeah, it's a different story for a different day. So yeah, so that was when my interest started. And then over the next few years, it kind of grew from there. It was all around, my dad got me into it. And then he was the one that facilitated the interest over the next few years. So he'd take me to all the Arsenal matches all the kickabouts in the park and yeah mate it just grew from there really and as you played more and got older how did your love for football grow and what did it provide for you as a kid back then mm-hmm. for your mental health or more than that was it a distraction from school a way of fitting in mm-hmm. escapism or perhaps even something greater yeah it's weird looking back at it right because obviously when you're you know a seven-year-old kid you don't think about why you're doing this so i think the main thing was it was fun it was fun in terms of exercise. It was good to socialise with your mates as well. So like everything about it really was just a lot of fun. And I think in looking back on it, it helped in all those things you'd spoke about, you know, whether that's mental health or whatever. It's just a kind of a nice break from everything else you're doing. Social side's massive, I think, as well. It really helps you develop your relationships with your mates. I want to talk about your youth football career, yeah. in inverted commas, if we can call it that, because uh-huh. you said to me off air that it taught you a lot of valuable life lessons, uh-huh. even if you were in a team that's fair to say wasn't that good. Yeah, so I played for a team which was, yeah, we weren't the best. So we would lose most weeks, especially in the first year. So the first game we ever played, we lost 3-0, which wasn't great, but wasn't the worst. And then the next week we lost 9-0. The week after that, we lost 12-0. Yeah, so first season it ended, we scored seven goals. We conceded 97. It was bad. It was bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was like first experience of youth football. But again, like you say, yeah, it does teach you massive lessons. When you're like 14, that's how old we were. It's not fun to lose every week, right? But if you stick at it, and then eventually we did start winning in the next couple of seasons, we won more games and it was a lot more fun. 
What was that first win like? Oh, mate, it was unreal. Like, do you know what? It got to the point, yeah, where there was one parent who was offering whoever scored the first goal. That was the situation at first. We were just focusing on who would score the first goal. The, there was a parent offering like 20 quid to the first person that scored the first goal. <laughs> 20 quid was a big deal back then. Yeah, and it came, it came eventually in a 4-1 loss. <laughs> so we still lost, but like, hey, someone went home with 20 pounds. But yeah, mate, that first win was massive. It was like a friendly game, I think. But obviously, yeah, after a bit getting battered every week, it was a nice, a welcome change, I mm. think. Was that a life lesson in itself? Accepting defeat a lot yeah. and riding the downs when they come. Personally, I think you can learn a lot from like playing sport when you're young. And that was definitely one of them. It was like, yeah, just understanding that not everything's going to go your way. And sometimes you've got to work at something before things start to improve. Because obviously what I would be doing was playing football on a Sunday, then going home and watching Arsenal win on a Sunday afternoon. And obviously you can't always play like Arsenal, you know, sometimes you've got to lose. And I think, yeah, it t definitely teaches you a massive lesson. Obviously football at that age for both of us was equal parts great and toxic because mm -hmm. for the kids who were great, they were worshipped in school. Yeah. And kids who were generally good at any sport, I think in general, were, were worshipped at school. And mm -hmm. the ones who weren't good, like me, or experienced a lot of exclusion, despite mm -hmm. the fact that we had all the enthusiasm and probably none of the skills. Yeah. You said how big football was for you back then. Do you think if you hadn't had that football ability, mm -hmm. you'd have enjoyed school as much? Yeah, mate, I don't know, to be honest, because I think that, as I say, when you live it, for me, I wasn't really thinking about it. If I wasn't good at football, what would this be like? I think it definitely does help, though. I think in terms of, like you say, the people that are good at sport, they're kind of well-respected within their peer group. It's the respect thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 100%. Even if you're not liked, you're respected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that it definitely does massively help. Would I have enjoyed school as much? Yeah, mate, I, I really don't know. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think it definitely helped, probably, I'd say. I want to talk about the dark side of youth football now, mm -hmm. because as anyone who's ever been slightly involved in youth football will know that parental abuse of referees, their own kids, yeah. and other kids can be at times toxic, horrible, and even traumatising, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. What examples of that dark side can you share with the listeners and what impact can it have on those kids' mental health? As you told me about a couple of stories you wanted to share. I think that it's obviously a massive problem. You hear these horror stories all the time. With my team in like Sunday League, there wasn't too many incidents. There was a couple which were like, things kind of got out of hand a little bit. But in general, the parents were decent. The parents were respectful because I think a lot of it stems from the parents. Mm. There was one example I think we talked about before, which some guy that I went to school with, he told us all in the playground one week in secondary school, we must have been like year nine or 10, where they'd been playing a game, like a, a kind of a, not a very Were good level. stakes of, high or? No, I was no, about to say, okay. yeah, not a very good level of Sunday league. It was like a local league for the division. Yeah, 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 like yeah, exactly yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously the game didn't go their way and they ended up, the parents were giving abuse to the ref all game. They ended up chasing him to his car. How old was his ref? Probably like- The ref would have been- 18, 19. Yeah, you never really think yeah. about it when you're like young, how old they are, but they're probably like 18, early 20s maybe. Like just a normal Sunday league ref, right? And yeah, they end up chasing to his car. And this guy was telling the story on the playground, like proud, you know, he was like, yeah, like this is what happened. But I remember thinking even then, I was just like, this is, this, is this isn't okay. right. Yeah, <laughs> this is, this isn't be how things are done. This and is not South America where you hear those really big yeah. horror stories about referees in big matches yeah. getting chased or yeah, punched yeah, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. It just seems so abnormal to me. And like, like I say, there's been incidents throughout playing Sunday league sporadically where, you know, things would threaten to bubble over or parents would get involved and it just wasn't very pleasant. But yeah, I think generally, obviously, I've always been like, this is pointless. Mm. It's just stupid, really, isn't it? So you didn't experience that yourself directly? Very rarely. There's one incident I can think of, but it was over before it started, basically. It's like right. one parent shouting, and then another parent kind of stops it, basically. Mm. And that's the thing. It can either escalate or it can stop. Yeah. Depends on who's around and who's there to step in, I guess. Do you think the problem for that stems from the top, in a way? Because a lot of parents see mm. these dollar signs of football mm. and think all of their kids are going to make it and be the next Phil Foden or yeah. the next Mason Greenwood. And they push and push and push their kids. And really, when you stop and think about it, the stat is something crazy like 0.00, I mean, don't fact check me on this, but 0.001% of kids will make it as a professional footballer. Yeah. But those parents just see their kid as a cash cow. I do a bit of football journalism in my spare time, right? And there was an article I wrote about academy football. And the stat was that I found it was like something like 0.05% of the kids that enter an academy at the age of nine go on to make it as a professional. So the odds are massively stacked against you. And that's when you're nine, but the odds are against you throughout your time in an academy, basically. I've got a friend that coaches around the academy world, goes into various academies, and he sees it every day. He sees parents who are basically vicariously living through their children mm. and who are putting all their hopes hopes of like they, wealth yeah themselves yeah wealth yeah, and yeah. also their not their reputation but some kind of like social Status symbol sa yeah exactly yeah in their kid and then it's just not healthy because then obviously the kid has got all these added pressures and the parents then are very very forceful when pushing their kids to make it when the reality is a tiny minority do and the thing is that tiny minority a lot of them they'll make it through 
I mean, I, I always hear this stat that when it comes to football talent, 30% is talent and 70% is mental yeah. or even even more towards the mental side because mm. you hear like, for example, it's an obvious one, but someone like Harry Kane was playing on loan at Leighton Orient yeah. Millwall when no one said at that point or you speak to fans, they would they would have never have said he was going to be England's, if not one of the world's best strikers. Yeah. And he made it through talent, obviously, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. a lot of ridiculous application and hard work. Yeah, 100%. And there's, all, there's so many different factors to consider. It's not just the case of this guy's amazing, he's going to make it. Like you look at people like Ravel Morrison back in the day at West Ham, who oh he was at Man United. Everyone said he's the most. Pogba talented. idolized him. Yeah, next, but yeah, that's exactly. What yeah, yeah, Lingard yeah. idolized yeah. him. Yeah, everyone looked at him was like, this is the next guy, but it didn't work out. Same with like Jack Wilshere at Arsenal, right? Kind of slightly different factors because he did make it to the first team and then he went left a little bit. Mm. But there's so many different factors, and I think that like Harry Kane, loan moves are a big thing because getting first team football somewhere is really important to kind of improve your game as well and become a, an established men's football player. Yeah, like, men you're playing with, the yeah. stakes are high. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I was talking to for another article I'm writing in a minute. I was talking to an old coach from Sussex Football which I think we'll talk about mm-hmm. in a bit so his name's Nathan Bowen so he's a football coach as well and he said that loan moves are really important because it gives you first team football experience but it really gets you out of your comfort zone mm. so all these players will be in an academy from the time they're like 9 to 18 mm. if you're in the academy every day you're in the same setup you're driving to the same place seeing the same people and everything's catered for you in an academy and if right? you're one of the top boys you, yeah. you think you're the boy you're great exactly yeah. but then you go out and, and also the games don't really mean anything at the end of an under 18 season if you become bottom of your league no one's going to lose their jobs or anything like that or your academy contract's two years long so you'll probably have another year to play at mm. least but if you go out on loan you go out to the lower leagues everything means stuff it's a completely different environment you're playing in front of a big crowd first of all and if you don't apply yourself then they're gonna let you know about it Mm. (laughs) but then you're playing with people as well who away from the academies in the premier league you're playing with people who are like chances are their contracts are short a year or two in like league one and below and every game matters basically if you get relegated that's a big problem Mm. for these players it's for the staff as well backroom staff we get let go and everything yeah you're talking about redundancies Mm. like even arsenal now are sacking their mascot (laughs) so i mean so that's i don't don't like how many people have laughed at that no i agree with that yeah because obviously erzl's come out and said oh that's a bit of a pr move in my (laughs) opinion as well as much as a nice gesture it is but yeah. I don't like the fact that people were like oh it's banter oh we yeah. signed party but we've let go of our mascot yeah. I think that's quite a cruel thing to yeah I was about. thinking that as well I was thinking like obviously there's a guy under the costume yeah mm. and he's been at the club for 27 years I think as an Arsenal fan I think it's very sad that it's coming to this point where these guys who have been up with us for 27 years for so 1993 mm. they're now just losing their jobs and you're signing someone with 50 million it's something's wrong there right yeah what is his wage like 40 grand apparently he's on 80 grand which is a different uh, I mean, story that's, whoa. <laughs> yeah. I mean I'd, I'd pay for that yeah exactly but like it's just mad, isn't it? Yeah. And then Oswald's coming out and then nice gesture, but what are the intentions behind it? There's, it's so, this multi-layered, isn't it? Mm. How do you think we stop it then? This toxicity in youth football and, yeah. and how do we help these kids have a better mental health state? Yeah, I think it comes from like a number of areas. I think the first of all, the coaching is important. So I think that the coaches need to take responsibility to first of all, conduct themselves in a certain way, but then also if it's a Sunday league environment, get the uh, parents to behave in a certain way as well. Because the parents, I think it, a lot of it stems from the parents, right? Yeah, of course. Hate is taught. Yeah, in, yeah, in, in every Arrogance kind of area of life. Exactly. Stuff, yeah. So I think it's, yeah, it comes from the coaches, but then it comes from the parents as well. And then I think the main thing, especially in Sunday league, where it's Sunday league, it's not even an academy setup. Sunday league, the emphasis has got to be on having fun, right? And just enjoying it. So you, you put loads of expectations on winning and well, winning's good and it's great and always try to win, but don't let that be the only focus. Mm. Just make sure where people have fun because at the end of the day, what's the point of getting up early on a mm. Sunday morning if you're just going to shout at each other mm. for, you know, 90 minutes? And speaking of that, have you ever had a TFC? What's a TFC? A thanks for coming. Where what's you that? Well, so in cricket, it's a big thing in cricket where yeah. a TFC will be if you get asked to play a game yeah. and you feel for a whole day, you don't get to battle bowl. Mm. So in football, it could be you're left on the subs bench as a kid the whole game. Yeah, so I never on a, as a kid, but it has happened since, like okay. in like various teams. And what was the impact that had on you? Oh, mate, it's rubbish. Obviously, it's rubbish. Like, <laughs> like, let me think. Oh, there was one I remember. My last team I played for, it was like a low semi-pro level, right? So I was a centre-back for this team, but like not really in contention. It was just a bad season. I was on the subs bench, basically, for the first team. And then the centre-back got injured. It was January as well. So it was a cold period. It, it was really really cold and I remember sitting on the bench the centre back got injured and then I was like right I'm going to have to come on here for 20 minutes and then he brought on someone else he brought on a a midfielder and put him centre back (laughs) he brought on a midfielder and then put the centre midfielder centre back and I was just like sitting there part of me was like you know what I'm freezing I don't want to play like I'm cool where was the ground though did you have to travel to the the it was a home game but it was it was when I was living in Brighton so it was like like a half an hour 40 minute bus journey so it was a home game but not really at home yeah a bit of a trek shit man coach is a mug yeah but I I mean he's listening but he's a mug yeah, what are you going to do, man? It's life. <laughs> Again, it's life, isn't it? So it teaches you, you know. And when you weren't losing, mm-hmm. what were some of your favourite memories or matches at youth level? Perhaps some of your best performances or some teammates that we can shout out, whether that's Sunday League mm-hmm. or when you were in school and A-levels as well. In terms of Sunday League, the best moment was probably that maybe that first win 
because yeah, we've been losing so much and all of a sudden it was a friendly game. So we didn't, there was nothing really riding on it, but we still won. It was just a nice feeling to just kind of, you know, have something to celebrate for once. In terms of school, there was one game we played, I was in like lower six, I was like year 12, where it, it was a tournament called the Catholics Cup. So it's basically all the Catholic schools in London would be entered into this tournament. My school hadn't won it in like 40 years or something like that, something really ridiculous. Then we scored like a last minute winner in injury time. And so that was an amazing atmosphere. And it was really good because the team we had were really good then as well. It was a really good bunch of guys that we were all kind of friends. So that was definitely another highlight. But then there was a lot of finals lost as well. So yeah, it makes the winning better, I guess. I asked this question to every guest on this series, mate. So when you were playing, mm -hmm. what mental tools or techniques did you use before or during the match to keep your mind on the game? Yeah, we actually didn't speak about this beforehand. This is something I thought about when I saw that question, but I still get really nervous when I play football. And especially before the game, like it's a massive... Like not a massive problem, but I really, really nervous. Probably more than I should, I think. I've read a lot about different techniques you can use in terms of you so know you overthinking stuff about what would happen if a situation happens. Yeah, or I make a mistake and stuff mm, like that. Yeah. yeah, I think the the problem is yeah the idea of making a mistake and what can go wrong. And I think obviously the better way to look at that is what can go right. People say like plan the game in your head, so play it in your head and think about how it's going to go. I think what I've just thought about recently and like recent years is just like. It is what it is, really. Like, really, if you play a game of football, it doesn't matter how it goes. Mm. Like, it's not going to change your life, right? And I think as well, it's just like, just go out and enjoy it is the main thing. I remember talking to someone who is in football and mm -hmm. they said, a lot of these elite players, like the very best, it sounds really bad to say, but they said, they're not the brightest. Yeah. So they literally just do not think about anything. They yeah. just play the game as it is. And yeah. it's almost like a blessing. Yeah. Because they just don't, think about those pressures and they just go right I'm going to go out on the field and play the game yeah 100% I think that's definitely I wish that could be like that because it is yeah, I wish I could yeah. life would be so much simple it's like you play a kickabout with your friends yeah and it's just fun isn't it and that's how it should be when you, all the times you play and I think Steven Gerrard I heard him speak once and he said you always get nervous before a game but I think nervousness is a good thing in a way because it kind of keeps you on your toes a little bit it shows you care so I probably haven't been the best at dealing with the nervousness, but you know, it is what it is really. And before we go on to university, when yeah. it came to your A-levels, obviously I think for me and I'm sure any person listening to this who's done A-levels back then mm -hmm. when it was AS and A2 and not in one complete thing like it is now, which is even worse for kids. Yeah. How did football help you or distract you during your A-levels? Because that for me, that was more stressful than uni. I think in general GCSEs and A-levels, when you're going through it, the school puts a lot of pressure on you because it's in their best interest too, isn't it? Because how you do in your A-levels reflects on the school, I guess. Whereas I guess in uni, you're kind of on your own a little bit, aren't you? And it's like the university are there, but it, yeah, whatever. But I think football is, like I say, it's just fun. It's, it was fun all the way through. So you'd be revising all day and then in the afternoon, you go out and have a kickabout with your mates when you're not on study leave, stuff like that. So yeah, it's always a nice little escape and always a nice little distraction just to kind of forget about everything else and just play. So it, it's always helped. It's any same as any type of exercise, right? You go for like, maybe not a jog because you're by yourself, but like you play any type of sport and you've got to be focused on that sport as opposed to anything else, whatever's going on in your life, good or bad. Let's fast forward to university now. Yep. Talk to me about your journey into the Sussex Uni men's team and maybe the initiation as well. Was yeah. it horrific or was yeah, it? Yeah, man, it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> what details can you say? I'll tell you what, it was bad, it was my own fault. So basically, I yeah, went to Sussex and then we had trials and it was a standard process. So yeah, got in through the trials. And like, in general, I like loved Sussex football and my time in Sussex football. Like it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of friends there. And obviously, yeah, there was this big social side, including the initiation, right? So yeah, obviously there's a lot of contention around initiations in general at university. And I think my year was the last year, I think, where we could do them on university like premises. I feel like there was a reason why it was not allowed on 100%. university premises <laughs> yeah. that I got told about or rumoured about. At yeah. Least. yeah, yeah, which so we which we can't share on this podcast. Nah, yeah. So my initiation, basically, we were just, you know, standard stuff, drinking. I think it wasn't as bad in compared to some of the horror stories you hear. Mm. It was just a lot of drinking, various things which you shouldn't be drinking, yeah. really. That's not the worst. On <laughs> no, the no, there was no like... 100% yeah, yeah yeah but so at one point in the initiation they went around to everyone they were like are you drunk are you drunk and everyone was like yeah I'm drunk I was trying to be a big man so I was like no I'm fine and then that was just a terrible move obviously and then after a couple more drinks I was drunk when I said that but then I was even drunker after I drank them more drinks yeah. so in the end yeah man I just I never made it to the club I don't think I've ever heard anyone make it to the club after initiation to be honest yeah do you think there's a wider problem with this and initiations because there's obviously and it's a scale some yeah. initiations are yeah, quite yeah. passable and mm -hmm. some initiations are very very horrific like mm -hmm. I've heard some ridiculous horror stories about things yeah it's, it's normally rugby but i'm not going to stereotype do you think there is a problem with it do you think unions need to tackle it yeah so i kind of think they have tackled it right to some degree like i say mine was the last year where we could do it in a university like um, the student union or seminar like yeah, yeah yeah seminar room yeah so next year we have to do it outside in university grounds but it's still outside 
the year after that we had to do it in a bar in town so they were really stamping it out quite quickly but i think they kind of had those measures in place because of the horror stories you hear I, there was one in sussex i can't remember what it was oh, i know what it was oh, you it's remember? pretty bad yeah i can't repeat it on this podcast but yeah, right. it's pretty bad so i think in general it's an interesting area and it kind of goes hand in hand with university sport in general because like you say there's levels to it right so i think in general what we did at sussex football was fine it was a lot of drinking a lot of alcohol but Personally, I think we didn't really cross a line that I can think of in initiations, but then you hear horror stories and it's bad. You need to know the line. You need to know where the line is, right? Mm. And I think when you're 20 or 21, it's sometimes, and it depends who you've got in the group, right? It mm. depends who's there. And a lot of times they don't know where that line is. Mm. And that's when it gets crossed. And the thing about initiations as well is there's that kind of thing where it's initiation. It's a big deal, right? And people maybe go a bit further than they should. So I think it is, yeah, it is an issue. When you became a third year, were you conscious of the fact of not in for better words wanting to fuck up the freshers yeah so again it's like because there's a lot of people who are like i got fucked up oh fuck these lot up yeah yeah i mean again like i was never really like that. i was i remember the third year initiation when i was in third year because we couldn't do it we had to do it in town there was that walk from where we were to oceana yeah oceana is where we went on a wednesday night for anyone that doesn't know there was that walk and then obviously everyone was very drunk by that point someone in bad states I remember there was one guy who I kind of just made sure he got there all right. I made sure people were cool as opposed to... Egging them on or yeah. making them feel worse. Yeah. yeah which is yeah. good. And, and the thing that we'll come on to this in a little bit, but that's the importance of having third years who are or fourth years who are role models. Yeah. And who set standards and help the freshers. Because if you don't set the standards in any team for the younger people to, mm-hmm. to follow, because they look up to you. So if you don't check their behavior, mm-hmm. they're going to think that behavior is okay. And if you egg them on, they're going to think that behavior is okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got, it's like, you got to have just different characters in a group, right? And if you don't have that mix of characters, then it's always going to be a problem. And that's like, not even just sports teams. It's literally any walk of life, like office culture, wherever. You don't have a mix of people that can moderate one another, I guess, mm-hmm. if that's the right word, then you're going to have trouble. And I remember this one guy, this, I'm thinking of that, this initiation. We gave them all these overalls to wear so they didn't get like messed up. And then he was like taking his overall off in the middle of the road in Brighton and he like, would have got hit by a car. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? So it's like, you needed someone to be there and be like, got to move out of the way, man. Yeah. Let's talk about the good side of uni football first. Yeah. It's fair to say you had some absolutely amazing times in yeah, that man. team. And from the, as an outsider who was kind of brought into that group a little bit, I had some great times with you guys as well when we uh-huh. went out together and, and we socialised. Do you want to share some of those with the listeners, how that made your university life special? Mm-hmm. And then we'll go on to some matches or performances afterwards yeah man so i think in general like i said like sussex football was so much fun and like we had so many good times varsity was always good so second year i played in the varsity game we won 2-1 the next year we drew nil nil wasn't it we did but we won the league the next year as yeah. well so it, yeah we drew nil nil we like technically lost on penalties but i mean the penalties were agreed <laughs> yeah exactly it was, that's always it, a cop out it was optional yeah <laughs> <laughs> it was officially a draw yeah but we won the league that year so like it was just general there was a lot to celebrate and we were a decent team as well all throughout throughout the three years there and in the social side as well was really good as well like there was a good bunch of guys and i made a lot of friends my kind of main friendship group was the football boys and all of my university like social life revolved around football and are there any matches or performances that stand out? Maybe a few players we can praise and name or Mate, take under the bus? Nah, I'm not, I, can't, I actually can't take any under the bus because it was just a really good team. Like, I was looking at the picture the other day from the day we won the league and maybe we were really good, like really like strong in all departments. The matches that stand out were the game we won the league, we beat Portsmouth 4-0 and Portsmouth were really good and we just, yeah, we just smashed them. There's like, players like the goalkeeper, Damien, was an unreal best goalkeeper I've probably played with. Big Damo, as I remember him. Yeah, he was massive, yeah, yeah. But he, massive. oh man, some of the saves I remember him making were just one like in Barcelona, I was thinking, wow, how has he saved that? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's one I remember against, it was some random league game against Surrey, a couple of games before, and it was literally like a, a save a pro goalkeeper would make. It was quality. But then there was like the whole spine of the team, like we had really good centre-backs who were freshers, um, Siki and Neil, who were like, for freshers to come into the first team, it was like, really good. Midfield was really good. We had Cheetah and me and Ethan. Ethan was unreal, was a proper, just a really good footballer, proper athlete. And we had John Hamlin as well, who was on the bench. He could kind of come on and like, he was really good as well. And then up front we had Ollie, who was, he was probably the best striker I've ever played with as well. The classic story I remember when I remember about football stories is just Mr. Matt Cheetah me and this absolute enforcer yeah man like psycho there's only one jimmy grimble sort of psycho yeah. character and then i was thinking i used to think crikey i've got i might have to be careful around this lad yeah and i met him at like 3 a.m with you like outside and he's just like a massive teddy bear there's a weird thing about football i think when people step on the pitch and they play the game it's just a different something test in the head animals, switches Eddie Jones always says in rugby doesn't he so yeah test animals you yeah know, on the pitch they're just different people yeah 100 percent. and it's like cheating off the pitch was completely chilled but even in training i remember he would be on it and i remember there's one where like <laughs> we were on different teams in a practice game and we went in for like a loose ball and apparently nathan had told him beforehand like nathan our coach had told him to calm down basically 
<laughs> but that's just how some people play. And he was a midfielder, man. That's how he had to play. He was a Man United supporter, so he grew up watching like Roy Keane. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yes, that's his, that was his idol, So what's going to happen? You know what I mean? Burying people for fun. Yeah, but he buried people. He was also very strong in the tackle and like just a really good footballer. But yeah, off the pitch, it's completely different. I want to talk about the darker side mm-hmm. of the sport culture now because let's face it, there was a lot of examples of it, not just in the football team, but across the sports teams at Sussex from people I knew. I don't want to say uni lad culture was rampant, mm-hmm. but it was definitely a big presence. And there was a lot of toxic masculinity. And to be frank, on a few occasions, I probably engaged with it myself. Such was my desire to fit in, maybe. Mm-hmm. I'm not proud of that. What was your experience of that darker side of university sport? And did you see that side or were you oblivious to it? Yeah, mate. To be fair, I think as well, there's a couple of things. So I think looking back, yeah, like you, 100%, I think everyone in that environment probably would have engaged with it at some point because it's very difficult, I think, in the moment to realise what's happening as opposed to looking back on it and being like, yeah, maybe that wasn't quite right. I think in general, Sussex, we weren't too bad, I don't think. Mm. We were a bit laddy and stuff like that in some people. Yeah, I don't think we were the worst, but we certainly weren't the best. Nah, yeah, I think, <laughs> yeah, room for improvement, but maybe... I think it's hard to also, in that moment, and I'm not excusing this at mm. all, if me and you had said, like, at the time, this is not okay and blah, 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 chances are we would have just gone... That's a bite. You're buying this. Yeah. What are you doing here? Like, yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah. It just made us put ourselves in worse situations. Yeah, probably. But I think as well, yeah, like I say, it's difficult in the moment when you're living it to realise what's happening a little bit. And as well, I think what, one thing I was going to say, an important point is I think the conversations definitely developed in recent years. I think that period, 2011, 2014, was like peak lad culture, I think. Mm-hmm. And kind of things have kind of moved on since then, I think. Do you think the fact that university is such a bubble and that in many ways Sussex continued that cliquey culture, mm-hmm. we all thought we had left in school yeah contributed to the way that some people in those sports teams behaved and a lot of people perhaps the freshers did or maybe even older years thought that being in a sports team was a status symbol yeah mate i definitely think it was a status symbol because like i remember the when tracksuit oh, oh, i was just gonna say days. On, <laughs> a lot of those tracksuits <laughs> screamed insecurity man. yeah man, but i i was exactly the same man like we would get our train i remember when we got our training kits yeah so we ordered our training kits in like, I don't know, October after everyone had joined the team. And then we got them delivered in like January. So it was peak winter and it was freezing. And I remember the first training session after we got them, everyone was out there, but minus initials, two degrees. Initialed ones as Yeah, well. but minus oh two degrees God. in their shorts and their t-shirts, freezing, but no one was wearing any jumpers or anything because they had their new training kit, you know? And I was exactly the same. And I remember pointing out at the time, I was like, yeah, this is, this is what we're doing That's here. That's some Norse stuff, man. That's some Norse stuff. Yeah. You see people wearing them in the library. I was like, come on. I won't name any names. Mate, you name mine. I was one of them, man. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I, could, I could have seriously dropped a couple of people in it if I checked myself. There was about 30 people in the football team. I reckon you could probably name about 30 people. I think <laughs> everyone did it. But like you say, going back to the question, they did it because it was a bit of a status symbol, mm, I think. Mm. Same for every team in uni. But I think, yeah, like you say, like it's such a bubble, isn't it? And it's like a a microcosm for like wider society mm. and it's like you have all these different sports groups and that's kind of how people kind of um, identify with them yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. Identity, yeah exactly yeah exactly yeah 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 do you think that being on a sports team back then as opposed to now would be different in Sussex probably I think yeah mm. and I can't see so much changing I think maybe they behave differently I know that when I left I think there was a lot more emphasis on the charity work that sports mm. teams did which I think is good and just a step away hopefully from that lad culture but I think that yeah I mean I think it's kind of human nature isn't it that's just how they identify themselves. And I think when you're that age as well, but going back to like primary school, when people people who are good at football are like the popular ones or whatever, you want it to be known to people that in the football mm. team, I guess. It sounds like mm. so super to no, say it, but I think it's true. When it comes to dressing room culture, tell me what it was like on the inside. Was it an environment where lads could be open about the mental health? Because mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this. Yeah. But what was your experience? Yeah, man, again, I think no, basically. I think, again, there's various factors. Like, I think basically the conversation, again, has advanced a lot in recent years, right? Where people are much more open about their mental health, which I don't think was there in like 2011 to 2014 when I was there. I think the changing room culture in general across like all sports, not just university sport, is one where I think maybe now people are starting to open up a little bit more. Whereas back then, I probably don't think they did as much. And I think in general, just the conversation around mental health, I don't remember then having conversations with my friends about, oh, how such and such a person or how are you? It was always a secret. Yeah, yeah, it was never something you talked about. Whereas now, and I don't think people were aware of it as well. The awareness was far lower, right? You never think if your friend was seemed like they were having a bad day, you never think there'd be like a reason behind that in terms of some kind of mental health problem. You just think they were just having a bad day. Despite the brutality of how some of the boys engaged with each other on Facebook, I knew firsthand a large amount of them, including myself, obviously, at the mm-hmm. time, were struggling with issues of their own, mm. but they usually disguised it with braggadocio, yeah. bravado, and then you'd hear like as a bit of gossip, he's actually struggling with 
addiction or he's actually struggling with gambling yeah. or he's actually struggling with depression you mm. know all these sort of things do you think that was a product of the way the conversation was around mental health at that time mm-hmm. or the university sports culture or both I think for example like you say yeah stuff about various people with different problems right I think we were aware of them but maybe we just didn't speak about them as much so in a group setting I think so like if a friend was struggling with a certain thing I think I'd be way more likely to speak to them one-to-one and just check in how they were and I, f- I remember the years after uni like you kind of check in with them still about like you know how are things in this respect they're focusing on an issue if you knew they had one but like again like I say yeah the, the conversation was just far lower like, I had no idea any that you were kind of any issues with what you were going through and obviously maybe that's because you were kind of removed from the bubble slightly because you weren't actually in football team mm-hmm. and then we would see you in social occasions and obviously when you're going out drinking and stuff like you always seem like really happy innit I had no idea innit that's the mask you put on. Yeah, I know. That's the mask we all probably put on at yeah. certain points. Like I say, the conversations advanced a lot. No one would know the kind of different coping mechanisms people had back then, I think. Mm. Or people were far less aware of it if they weren't, if they didn't have those issues themselves, I guess. And how do you look back on your time in Sussex football? Is it nothing but good memories or other things like we've said earlier, you reflect on and think, blimey, I don't think what we did was right there. Yeah, I think overall for me, as a like personally, I have really good memories. Like I really enjoyed it. But then at the same time, I can see in terms of university sport in general and some of the stuff we used to do when we were drunk, like not do, but like, you know, shout and stuff. You wouldn't do it now, for example. But I think, you know, the person you are when you're 21 is very different to the person you are when you're 28. You're far more mature and you're far more aware of what you say to people and how you treat people as well. One thing I found quite funny when we, we chatted off there sort of builds from this question, mm-hmm. Pat. You said a friend asked how your mental health was casually in conversation. Yeah. And you're almost dumbstruck by it. So yeah. just tell me about that story and, and, and why you felt shocked. Yeah, mate, I actually like laughed about it because I thought they were joking. So it was about it was last year when it happened and we were just kind of chatting and we were just out a couple of us. And then she was like, yeah, so how's your mental health? I think I was like, we were just in a pub or something. I was like, what, are you serious? Like, are you seriously like, what is this? Obviously, there was literally, it was a serious question. But it's just, it took me aback because it's the first time someone had actually asked me that question. And it's, a, yeah, a question I had never been asked before and something I never considered asking someone either. But obviously, yeah, she was being serious. And then, yeah, we kind of just got on with the conversation. I answered the question, I asked her and, you know, it was normal. But it was that initial asking the question for the first time, I was, it just completely took me aback, yeah. I want to talk about Pat, the footballer in adult life now. Yeah. In this eternal rat race we are living in, how does Sunday League football help you navigate this adult world? Sunday League in general is very important because it teaches you valuable life lessons. Like team sport in general teaches you valuable lessons. So going back to when I was playing Sunday League, like I said earlier, it teaches you that not everything's going to go your way all the time. So sometimes you're going to lose and sometimes you've got to work a bit harder and think things through a bit harder to kind of ultimately get the result you want. I think it teaches you good social skills as well. I remember some of the kids I used to play with in Sunday League, I didn't really like them that much. And naturally, I think when you get a group of like 20 people, there's going to be some you don't really get on with that well. And it teaches you that, you know, you've got to just get on with people sometimes. You've got to just like cooperate. Jog along. Yeah, just yeah. jog along. It's just, it's just part of life really, isn't it? So I think it teaches you various life skills. One final thing I want to discuss, Pat, when it comes to football mm-hmm. is football Twitter. Yeah, man. Football Avi Twitter, as yeah. it's more commonly referred to. Most of it, if not all of it, is driven by this religious defence of your particular team. No one can say anything that you deem wrong about your team to the point where some people will send horrific abuse to strangers mm-hmm. based on if they think a player your club is even allegedly interested in won't come to your club. Yeah, It's madness, isn't it, really, when you think about it? What has been your experience of it and how do you, how did we get to this point? I think it's like really, really bad. I think I said, yeah, we spoke about it off air and I was just, I think football culture is good in a lot of ways, but I think in certain ways it's, it's bad. And I think the social media football Twitter is just like one of the worst. It really annoys me because I see people like tweeting stuff and it's obviously they're just looking to get a negative reaction from someone and just annoy someone. Going back to uni culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, what I'll be doing is I'll be scrolling through Twitter, just wasting time. And then I'll see something and that'll be the thing which makes me put my phone down. It'll trigger you. Yeah, and I'll be like, I'm wasting my day here. I'm going. But yeah, I think it's, it's very frustrating to me because I'm just like, it's just not healthy and it's just it's just so pointless my friend told me the other day that the person arrested who was found to have racially abused Wilfred Zaha was a 12 year old boy yeah this is just insane isn't it uh-huh. it's, is it on parents to police the behaviour of these kids running these secret anonymous football accounts or the platforms themselves I think the platforms themselves have a lot of responsibility and maybe not in terms of that but in terms of generally policing what is posted on say Twitter for example so I'm thinking more in like terms of like a political sphere mm. especially with like US elections and mm. you know all that stuff and fake news and that they got a lot of responsibility to kind of monitor that a lot more i think in terms of the that example specifically it's a massive problem but then you wonder like, if a 12 year old kid is speaking like that where's he getting that from and i'd say a lot of the time he's probably getting that kind of stuff from his parents or his pig or like his friends 
And they're not getting checked by it. And they're not getting checked. I think as well, that's the problem with social media, isn't it? There's like that anonymity. That's the right word. Yeah. Am I saying it right? (laughs) Anonymity. Anonymity, yeah. yeah. And that's obviously a problem. And that's another thing that social media companies need to monitor better. If you've got people who are presenting themselves as someone else, there's no accountability there. So they'll say whatever they want. And just finally, Pat, how Mm. do you think football has shaped you into the person I'm speaking to today? Yeah, mate. Massive, I think. Like I say, I think it teaches you a lot of lessons throughout life, whether that's, you know, how to deal with people, how to win and lose, how to socialise. I think so. I think it's been massive. We've talked about Pat, the footballer. I want to delve a little bit deeper now and talk about your own journey, mate. Mm -hmm. So why don't you, first of all, just take me through your early life, your teenage years, and whether looking back you had any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? You know, who's the pack we meet here? Yeah, so I think in general, I think I've been pretty lucky in terms of throughout my life, not really had any really kind of serious mental health problems. Obviously, there's been times when I've been less happy than other times, but I think that's the same for everyone, isn't it? But yeah, so basically, I grew up in uh, North London, then... Yeah, kind of quite near me, which I found out. Yeah, mate, I didn't realise it was only half an hour drive away <laughs> yeah, from yeah. me. Yeah. Well, I'm northeast, so yeah, yeah, I had no idea. So yeah, so I grew up in North London, stayed there until I was 18, then went to Sussex, moved back to London for a year, then moved to Brighton for a couple of years, and then moved back to London last year. So yeah, that's, that's where I've been living basically. <laughs> Growing up as someone who was obsessed with watching and playing football yeah. and sport in general. Did you ever worry that your identity would become solely transfixed around football, mm-hmm. become known as that person when it came to other people's perceptions of you? Yeah, I've often thought this, right? So if I go into like a social situation, I speak to people, oh, a lot of the time I found myself speaking about football. That'd be like the go-to thing like you speak about. Because, or they'd raise it. Yeah, yeah, just because like, you know, they like football and you know that you like football, you know, so it kind of, it's just a natural talking point, which is good because it helps you connect with people. But then obviously there's more to life. So I think I never really worried that it was just the only part of my personality but it, obviously it was kind of a big part we've already spoken at length about sussex uni mm-hmm. but i want to separate that from pat the man arriving at university yeah, yeah. did you feel ready yeah this, again it's another thing i thought about you kind of sent me through these questions that i never really considered before so basically i was really skeptical of uni before i went there i wasn't going to go and then i kind of thought about it a little bit more i didn't really have any other plans none of us did exactly did we? right because you're, you're only 17 so you've got to realize that like People have got to be kind to themselves a little mm. bit and just be like, don't worry, you haven't got anything planned out. And school didn't put those pathways in place for us. It was all, no. being a, university was the be all and end all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the natural thing is for teachers to suggest you go to university. So I remember loads of teachers used to tell me, go to university. And so obviously I did in the end and it was a good decision. Like I loved it. Was I ready? I'm probably ready as like anyone else is, you know. You said to me off air that football helped you fit in at Sussex yeah. and without it, you worried that if you would have had mm-hmm. nearly as good as an experience without it. Yeah. Just elaborate on that for me, if you could. Was that a confidence issue or was that something else? Yeah, I don't think it was a confidence issue, right? I think it was the... I think maybe what's not talked about enough is how big a life experience university is. So I went to university just, you know, as anyone does, not really any expectations or thought about the social side to it. But obviously, it's the first time you really go somewhere and you're forced to, like, you're out on your own, basically. It's a massive life experience. I think, arguably, it's more important. The life experience you get is more important than the kind of education you get. Mm. Obviously, the degree is important, but the life experience is just, it's really pivotal, I think. So, yeah, so I went there and it was just first time I really had to, like, go somewhere on my own and just make friends. And football helped massively. I'm pretty confident that it wouldn't have been as fun an experience if I hadn't got in the football team. And outside of Sussex football, who's the pack we meet here? What lessons did uni teach you, do you think? Yeah, massive, loads of lessons. I think it teaches you social skills. Like, it teaches you how to just speak to people and make friends. It also teaches you how to be independent as well. The thing about school is that, like, you have people encouraging you to work every day, but uni, there's far less contact and your tutors are far more removed. So if you don't work, then then you're going to get kicked out, basically. No one really cares if you get kicked out. It, yeah, it teaches you independence, it teaches you how to, like, really valuable life skills, you know, how to cook, how to take care of yourself, basically. So, yeah, it's really, really important, I think. And after you graduated from uni, you stayed in Brighton, like you said, for a couple of years mm-hmm. and then eventually moved back to London. When you moved back to London, I think I'd be right in saying that you were frustrated in your job search. Uh-huh. If you could, just tell me a bit about this period of your life and what that was like for your mental health. Yeah, so it was difficult, right? So I had a job in Brighton, I was living in Brighton, and then like various life events kind of happened, so I moved back to London. So I was still working in Brighton because I didn't want to be unemployed, mm. so I was commuting for a little bit. And I was just applying for jobs, basically, with the idea of eventually going back to London. Uh, moving back to London completely but what I found was it's quite difficult to get a job past a grad phase obviously when you're a graduate you kind of eventually everyone kind of gets a job after a little bit of time but this took me a while this took me like 
probably like six months. Mm, to, I've been um, there, mate. It's hard. Yeah, yeah, and I really didn't expect it, but it is difficult, especially because I basically wanted, ideally I wanted to get into sports marketing. Mm. But at the time I didn't really have, I was working for a production company called the Progress Film Company in Brighton. And it was obviously a production company. It wasn't sport related. So I was kind of trying to transition in my job a little bit and change sectors. So yeah. Which is hard. Difficult, man. <laughs> it's hard. I know, I know yeah. the feeling. Did you find it emasculating? Um... I found it quite emasculating being unemployed. Maybe not emasculating, but I found it like very demoralizing. Because mm. you're like, because I, I was at a stage where I wasn't, I was getting a few interviews and the interviews went well. But again, it's just competitive, isn't it? A lot of the time you apply for a, a job and you don't get the interviews. So you kind of think like, what, what's happening here? Like, why mm. can't I even get an interview? I can see why you, you did feel em- emasculated by it. Mm. I think I didn't feel that. I just felt very like, yeah, it's really demoralized, really. Did you find it awkward in a social situation? This is what I found. And my mates were fine. Don't get me wrong. Like, mm. all, my, all my social group were really supportive. Like, I got, I've been made redundant three times. Yeah. And every time I was in that period, oh, and I'd meet up with my mates. They'd say, oh, how's it going? I'd be like, yeah, yeah I'm still unemployed. Yeah. It's Mate. just such a conversation killer. Massive, massively. I think I find it very awkward. And I think it's a massive, like, as soon as you start talking about it, people can tell you feel awkward about it. People ask me, oh, so you're back in London. I'll be like, yeah, I'm back in London. And they're like, oh, so where are you working? I was like, well, I'm still working in Brighton. And then it's just like, it just doesn't make sense, right? Mm. And you have to really explain it. I think it's very much self- Self-fulfilling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, yeah a, little sure, bit. a lot of people, their work is their identity. It's awkward because you think it's awkward. You know, I reckon people I was speaking to were like, oh, okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't really care that much. Yeah. But yeah, I think 100% it was not a touchy subject, but it was yeah. one I didn't really like talking about. I think it's also because you get a lot of satisfaction from feeling like you're being active and work is mm-hmm. a proactive thing. I yeah. remember going on a date once and I just felt like so embarrassed to having to say like I was yeah. unemployed at that time. Yeah, I think as well. It's just a, it's a stigma. Of, it's yeah. a stigma. I think it's a cultural social thing where it's like saying you're unemployed or saying you've been made redundant. It's a bit of a, yeah, it's like seen as a negative when really... The reality is it can happen to anyone at any time. A lot of the time it's out of your control, isn't it? And it's one of those things, especially now, like with all this, like the pandemic and that, and there's a lot of problems with various industries and, you know, it's just a reality that's going to happen to people. It's, it shouldn't be an area of shame. It should mm. just be like, it is what it is really. You obviously decided to give sports journalism a go, like mm-hmm. you said, and I remember you interviewing me for a piece you wrote actually a while ago. Yeah. Was that mental health related? Was that Huddersfield? I don't really know. Yeah, so what that was, was a, that was like a year and a bit ago. So that was about relegation from the Premier League. Ah, yes. Uh, that scarred me, you know. That, what the, the relegation? No, 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 not the Oscar. Don't I'm worry, so sorry. Don't worry. No, I'm still treated right now. No, I'm joking. No, the relegation. The it's not talked about enough because when I, I guess when you're that, you're younger and that misery of connecting. If you're so, you know, you're so passionate about yeah. your club. Like I was just put off football for quite a really? while, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because a lot of fans embrace the championships. So they're like, the Premier League is this golden land. But mm. then when they get relegated, they're like, well, we hate the Premier League anyway. Like we want to go back to the championship yeah. where it's fun. That wasn't like, me, by the way. It was no, more because losing yeah. every single week was bloody long. There's different ways to get relegated, <laughs> isn't there? Yeah. Right. But yeah, that article was basically looking at the various. Because I interviewed three different people for three different clubs, and they were one was a journalist, one worked at the club, and then one was the fan. So that was you. So different perspectives. I mean, in general, one thing that stuck with me was the guy I interviewed at Wolves. He's the head of ticketing at Wolves. So he was, he's been working at the club for ages. So back in a couple of years ago when they got relegated and then they got relegated again to League mm, One. Double one. We could have done that easily, double relegation. Yeah, yeah, but he says the thing that people don't realise, the reality is that a lot of the time you get relegated and you can just about manage. If you get relegated again, depends on the situation of the club. Sometimes one relegation is enough, but as soon as you have a downturn in results, then you're talking about redundancies again. People you've been working with and friends with for years, all of a sudden, you're kind of saying goodbye to them. So mm-hmm. it's, it's really difficult. And I think, yeah, people really don't pay attention to it maybe as much as they should. And when it comes to your journey into sports journalism or the one that you had with sports journalism, how have you navigated it and what have been the challenges you faced? Yeah, so basically the sports journalism thing was I started that with an eye on the future, basically. So I was thinking at some point in my life, I might want to either work, be a sports journalist or work in sports marketing. And this was a way of like showing some like actual physical evidence that I could do that. The side hustle. Yeah, it's just, it was a side hustle, which I think a lot of people have, right? They this is a side hustle. People. Yeah, yeah, good point. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was basically like that. So it was, I've loved it really. And again, it's taught me a lot. Like it's taught you how to like, if you want to do something, just go out and do it really. I'll have an interview in mind or have an article in mind and I'll just go out and start to making calls and sending emails. If you want to make it happen, you've got to get the ball rolling yourself. So I'll be like, I've emailed Luton Town before. Like you're speaking to clubs that I never really thought would actually ha- give you the time of day, mm. but they're very happy to just yeah help you any way they can. I think that's one thing I've realised that people really are willing to help you if you just kind of approach them the right way and are nice to them. Um, who's the Pat speaking to me now as opposed to the one who was in uni or perhaps the one who was 14, 15? <laughs> and what hopes or ambitions do you have in the future for your career or otherwise? 
I think in general, just compared to like uni or compared to 15, 16, I'm just way more mature. Um, you always seem quite mature back then though, in, to your credit. Well, more mature than a lot of us. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. Like I think, yeah, but I think maybe not mature, but I'm just way more aware of just how the world works, I guess. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. And yeah, in terms of my career, yeah, because I eventually did get a job in sports marketing. So that's all going well. And I hope, I hope it just kind of continues in that way. I'm really enjoying it in a minute. So yeah, we'll see where it goes. And obviously the sports journalism thing is an, a side hustle. We'll see where that goes as well. Mm. It's interesting. I think I'm just really like enjoying both areas. So yeah, mm. it's good at the minute. And if you could go back and speak to that 15 or 18 year old Pat who was a bit unsure of himself or perhaps feeling a bit anxious about uni yeah. or, or football in general, what do you think you would say to him knowing what you do now? One thing when I was a teenager, I think same with everyone, it's just confidence, isn't it? You're an unconfident teenager. I just tell me when I was 15, just not to worry really. Just be yourself and then you know, everything turns out fine ultimately. I think as well, yeah, be kind to yourself. Our final topic of conversation, Pat, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, circumstances including or excluding if you want yeah how would you say your mental health is at the moment mate yeah mate i think in general like i said like my mental health is pretty good obviously yeah one thing i was gonna speak about with you is just the kind of current climate and the pandemic and everything because obviously it's been i think it's been testing for everyone so people who might not traditionally have mental health problems i think they've likely had you know some unhappiness during this time because it's the first time ever yeah potentially yeah and it's probably it might have caught them off guard a little bit because like i said yeah i remember back in march and for like months afterwards, I would talk about it with people in terms of what was happening and I'd just be puzzled by it all. Like I couldn't really quite get my head around it. It was just really like really just confusing time. Mm. But yeah, I don't know how you found it as well. Yeah, it was hard, man. I mean, I've spoken a little bit about it on, on different pods, so I found it really hard in the first few months. Mm-hmm. I lost gigs. I lost being able to do this, yeah. do, do pods and stuff until I found out how to do it online. I lost Huddersfield matches, mm. which is a big thing for me and my dad. I felt like I was losing all my self-care tools. Yeah. So that was really hard. And then I kind of got back to a level of normality for a while. And then I thought I had COVID and I had like oh, the wow. worst panic attack I'd ever had in my life in like the middle of the night when yeah. I had temperature. And then I was fine in like a week. Yeah. I just stayed in my house for like 10 days like you do. And I was fine. I don't, I'm not even sure if I had it, mm-hmm. but I just got so health anxiety was yeah. really high. And then after that, I got to a steady place and then it's just ups and downs a lot, to be honest, at the mm. moment. It really is. It's like you get the health anxiety because the cases are going up yeah. and it's also like, well, it's a difficult time because you don't know if things are coming back. And yeah. I try not to let things that are out of my control control me. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, are gigs going to be there when, yeah, I, yeah. when I get back? Yeah. Are clubs going to be there when I get back? Is sport going to be there when I get back? Mm-hmm. You know, for the EFL, it's yeah. a big thing right now. So yeah, it's a, it's a difficult time, man, but I'm just trying to survive, man. When people ask me, I just say I'm surviving. That's the best thing I can say. Yeah. Do you have any like, obviously in case something like there's a second lockdown or something like a second lockdown, do you have any like coping mechanisms that you learned in the first one that's going to leave you a bit prepared? <sighs> I guess so. But at the same time, a lot of my coping ne- mechanisms that I've got back, for example, the gym, mm. when I got that back, yeah. it was amazing because... Yeah. I've got work, finish work, go to gym, come back, yeah. do some pod editing, read, whatever. If I lost the gym and I lost being able to go out and about again, yeah. it's a tough one. I don't even know I could answer that, to be yeah. honest. I think it's the routine for me. So, like, I think exercise is a massive part of it. I also thought football coming back is a massive part that I didn't realise until it was back. So, before mm. football came back, I was kind of like, I don't think it should start again because it's not safe. But it was such a help because it took your mind off everything. And it's also, it's a time filler at the end of the day. Mm. I think that's the main thing for me. I'm just like, there's nothing to do at the minute. Mm. And what other tools and methods do you use to help human health or improve it? I think lately it's been just anything to fill the time, basically. So I started like playing the piano in like April. Really? Just like randomly, right? So I used to play piano when I was young, but I forgot all of it. I never practiced. So I still got a piano in my house, right? <laughs> like a grand one? Nah, that's not a grand <laughs> one. I'm not like Elton John or anything. <laughs> just a little, like a, it's a piano. Yeah. So I just started playing that. I got like sheet music from the internet and then I just started learning it, man. It was painful. Was but, it? Free, oh, free blind mice? No, nah, it was- Hot um, buns? No, nah, I started playing- um, Smoke on the water? Nah, it was a bit more advanced. <laughs> it was like some song by the, you know, the Lumineers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A song by them called Ophelia. So fairly basic, but like quite a good thing to play. How's not, it going? Not three blind mice. I can play that, but I can't play anything else. Right. And it was a long- One growth. man band. Yeah, very much. One track band, I should say. Yeah, my concert would be short. <laughs> I'd have to get a good uh, warm-up. Three minutes 30. I'd have to get a good warm-up act. Um, but yeah, so like, it was a long process. But again, it's just a time filler, isn't it? Yeah. So stuff like that and like exercising, man, helps. That's about it. And mm. football was a good, because it seems like football's on all the time at the minute. So mm. that was good as well. And how do you support friends in your own social group who may have mental health issues themselves or may just be going through a poor period of mental health? 
Yeah, this is an interesting one because like I say, I, I said about my friend asking me how my mental health was last year and I was just taken aback by the question. But since then, I've got a main group of guy friends I went to school with. Mm. And since then, various times, there's just questions come up about our, our mental health and the, the mental health of everyone in our group and whether we would be aware of people's mental health problems if they had them. Because we don't, like I say, we don't ask. It's surface level. Yeah. There's a thing I saw today that the FA released just about, you know, you always ask people, are you all right? How you doing? You're all right. Ask twice rule. But it's yeah. always very surface level, like you say. It's never, no, but how are you really doing? Yeah. The Ask Twice was one of the best things I've found. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's new to me, isn't it? But I think, obviously, like I say, awareness is really rising at the minute. And mm. I, to the point where me and my friends are having these conversations, like, how do you think, would we know if, you know, anyone was having these problems? Mm. My friendship group's pretty good in terms of, we're very aware of what's going on in one another's lives. Mm. So, for example, if someone has a bad thing happen to them, everyone is going to support them and be there for them. Do you know what those red flags are now? So, say I asked you what red flags would you state were red flags if your mate said it yeah maybe not red flags in terms of saying it but i would say that if someone went quiet in terms of um withdrawn or didn't yeah. come out a lot or yeah, yeah exactly that yeah so being quiet on whatsapp we've got a whatsapp groups so being quiet on whatsapp or not going to social things i think that would be a red flag because it's so unlike our group right mm. and i think as well like we just got a mind on if someone's you know lost their job or someone's going through something a particular event we'll be aware of that mm. so if Keep one of your mates said to you I'm really struggling. Mm. Would you see that as a red flag? Oh, 100%. Yeah. That's the best one. I always describe it as British people always like to underplay everything yeah. that's going on with them. Yeah, yeah, So if yeah. you're having a bad day, you'll just be like, I had a bad day. Mm. If you've had a really shit day, yeah. you'll just be <laughs> like, I'm struggling. 100%, yeah. But if you could be... I remember saying to people, I'm really struggling and I was suicidal. Yeah. You just don't want to say, mm. I'm suicidal. No, yeah, 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 100%. I would say that the phrase, I'm really struggling, for me, that's like a... Okay, we really need to talk about this because no one's going to say, like, I think, like you say, the natural thing is, how are you? I'm right, mate. Yeah, you? That's the normal response, even if you're not particularly well. If you actually overtly say something negative, like, yeah, mate, really bad time at the minute, I think 100% you'd be there for one another. Because mm. I think, yeah, any type of negativity and that, that kind of response will elicit a response. Mm. Toxic masculinity is mm -hmm. something we try and break down a lot on this pod, Pat, as you can imagine. Yeah. Firstly, what does it mean to you how do we tackle it mm -hmm. and what example you've probably seen a few examples of it but yeah. how what examples can you share with the listeners it's an interesting one when i think of toxic masculinity i don't really have as much of a definition of it as i do like a character in my head of how someone who's talk with toxic masculinity acts mm. i think about like a nightclub setting or something where you know they're big they're loud they're getting really drunk and you know touching girls up when they walk mm. on the dance floor stuff like i remember that one that people used to like touch girls on the dance floor when they like used to walk by them and well, that, sexual assault. Yeah, for me, it's <laughs> or just harassment like, at least. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I think of when I think of toxic masculinity. I think how do we change that? I think I think it's just good role models, really. Mm. I think that's where it stems from. Because if you don't see people acting that way, then you're unlikely to act that way yourself. Do you think checking it as well, challenging it? Yeah, hundred percent challenging it. Yeah, and I think it's a difficult thing to do. If you if see your if friend it's a group situation it, mm. and it's a group environment where everyone is doing it, it's yeah. hard to be the outlier, isn't it? Yeah, hundred percent. It takes a lot of courage. I think it's a, in a lot of things in terms of social situations, especially at the minute in the current climate when there's a lot of social unrest. It's very difficult but important to kind of yeah stand up when you see someone doing something wrong. But again, it's easier said than done. For me, I always find toxic masculinity as a a peer pressure thing. Yeah, and also when someone inflicts pain or abuse on someone who they deem as not living up to their criteria of yeah. being a man. So liking things that they deem unmasculine, mm. having interests that are unmasculine, yeah. acting in a certain way which is unmasculine, but yeah. it's their definition of it, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, man, it's true. I've never been around the situation where someone is doing that to someone else because of what they like. But then I guess, you know... In school, that happened a lot more, mm. I feel. Yeah, and I think as well, there was like, especially in young men, there's a lot of, quite a lot of homophobia as well. That's it, saying something's gay. Yeah. Calling someone a pussy. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, is like, literally yeah. those things. You yeah. say that all the time, like, oh, that's gay, that's gay. When really it's just like... You don't think how hurtful that can be to people who actually are gay. And as well, liking certain things doesn't make you gay. Like, I like musicals. Yeah. Like, I love Hamilton. You've seen Hamilton? No, not yet, man. That's amazing. I've seen a musical in time, man. That's another thing I miss because of COVID. Yeah, 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 yeah. The the <laughs> My friend said this to me the other day. He was like, I don't want to sound like a really middle class person right now, but I really miss going to the theatre. Yeah, man. I like, it's man, hard, I'm, man. It's I know hard. how you feel. Yeah, but it's like, I think as you get older. It's even you... music, man. I remember mm. in school, people used to say if you liked a certain genre of music you were gay or if you liked oh. a song with female vocals in it you yeah. were gay like it's absolutely ridiculous but place yourself in that situation and you can see how toxic it becomes yeah yeah 100 percent. it's like when you're young i've heard some things which is just like it doesn't make any sense nope it's stupid and it's immaturity mm. as you get older you realize people have diverse interests and they can like certain things and it doesn't define who they are 
it's just a hobby. And I think some people grow out of that and realize that, other people don't. It's boring if everyone likes the same thing. Do you think it's derived from insecurity themselves? Yeah, 100%. In some sort of insecurity or some like... Projection of something, either it's trauma or it's pain or it's their yeah. own insecurity, I feel. Yeah, or it's like what they... Again, it's come back to role models. It's like what they've been taught when they're young. If mm. you've been taught... If you're coming from a very masculine environment where you're taught that liking sport is what you should like and you shouldn't like dancing mm. it's like, I haven't seen Billy Elliot but I think that's what Billy Elliot's yeah, about yeah pretty much yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. he doesn't want to be a boxer he wants to be a ballet dancer yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's like that it depends yeah where you come from I talk a lot on this pod as well Pat about this idea of positive masculinity now hopefully in a few years time and more pods yeah. all masculinity will be defined as positive masculinity uh-huh. and toxic masculinity will be hopefully a very small minority mm-hmm. what are some of the qualities you think a man should have to exude to be described as positively masculine is it self-confidence supporting your friends being non-judgmental mm-hmm not being a dickhead when you're in a group versus a one-to-one situation yeah, is the yeah, yeah. one that we talked about off air as being the main quality. 100%. I think it's an important question to ask because masculinity, there's nothing wrong with masculinity. It's just toxic masculinity. There needs to be a, a kind of a clear differentiation between the two. Mm. And I think sometimes toxic masculinity in the media or in some parts of the conversation is defined as masculinity. Yeah, that makes sense. yeah, yeah. And I think it's, that's not right. And the same vein as toxic masculinity yeah, is wrong. But masculinity, yeah, is inherently, it's, it's, I'd say, a good thing, mm. you know. But I think it depends how you define it. So I think for me, I was thinking about this answer, I think it all stems from being self-confident. And because when you're self-confident, then you don't feel the need to take the mick out of other people because of what they like or because of who they are. Or it, caring what other people think. Yeah, exactly. Caring what other people think. And it gives you the self-confidence to be yourself as well. That's hard for a boy when we were growing up. Yeah, really Very difficult. hard. It's, and even now, though, now it's a kind of thing where you've got to really think about it. It's not an easy thing to do. You've got to really think like, yeah, who am I? Why am I doing this? Mm. Am I doing this because other people are telling me to do it? Or am I doing it because I want to do it? You know? It even comes down to the way you dress. Like, if you wanted to wear like a pretty loud outfit mm. and you walked out and you go... Oh, is someone going to give me a few looks if I'm walking down the yeah. street? Am I going to cop a bit of abuse? Da, yeah. da, da, da. You see those people, right? And they have no inhibitions. They wear whatever they want. And like, that's different level, man. I'm like, wow, like, fair play. Because it's just like, they do what they want. And that's obviously within reason. But yeah, it's just self-confidence, really. And how have you seen the old attitudes to mental health, especially amongst men, compared to more recent attitudes, do you think? Yeah, it's definitely changing. Like I say, back in 2014, even, the conversation's different now to what it is what it was then yeah it's, it can only be a positive thing right like talking more and being aware more aware of your feelings i think not just in the mental health context but being more aware of your feelings and how you're feeling and why you're feeling that way and being self-aware yeah, yeah. it's just a it's just a good thing and as well i think yeah i think in general i think it's important to retain perspective so if you're feeling a certain way one day you really got to think about why you're feeling that way and just always realize as well that that it's not gonna last forever why do you think men have struggled to open up about their emotions and show vulnerability until very recently do you think society has put this pressure upon us mm-hmm. or have we as men done it to ourselves probably both they probably go hand in hand right so i think it's definitely a social thing i think classically men were expected to act in a certain way both in a social environment and like a professional environment as well, like that image of as the man as the breadwinner. But that stuff's completely changing now, right? That stuff's completely changing. And with it, I think the general perspective of what a man is is changing as well. Gender becoming more fluid and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah but yeah. it's just yeah, it's just like, you know, hopefully I think society is kind of transitioning to being more accepting of just people in general. And it's a slow process. I don't think obviously we're definitely not there yet. But I'm hoping in terms of, you know, the fight against homophobia or racism in society. Obviously there's loads of work still to be done. But I think there's been some progress at least. Mm. Do you think, and this is a quite a broad question, you don't have to have a complete answer on it. Yeah. Do you think in some ways that dating or the dating economy has placed more pressure on the modern man? I'm probably a, a product of it myself where yeah. I go to the gym to feel good and for my self-esteem, but also you have that in your back of your head or I'm doing this to impress a girl, or I'm doing this to look good. Yeah. Do you think in a way, and I'm not saying that women intentionally do this mm-hmm. or, or whatever, but do you think that whole pressure has added to this battle for what men should deem as important or the pressures they put on themselves yeah potentially you know it's like is it the main reason or is it just maybe a consideration that people have the steroid use is getting mad is it yeah the steroid use is getting big in amongst boys our age right to the extent where i'm seeing examples of it you know you can only guess when you see people in the gym but some are pretty obvious yeah but you're also seeing boys from a younger younger age caring about having six packs Mm. and having big muscles and having this ripped and bulky archetype and let's be real very few men have the metabolism and the body type to be a massive yeah. and b shredded yeah and c at the same time yeah it's an interesting thing because I, I go to the gym a lot i used to go you know when i was like from 16 till now but a lot of the time in my early years it was like that it was like wanting to look big and wanting to get like muscular and six packs and that 
But why was I doing that though? I, for me, it was always for athletic reasons, for like football. Yeah, it would make sense for football, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then there's always that consideration as well about like how you're going to look. Because girls will find you more attractive is the kind of mm. idea, isn't it, right? I always find this funny when people say the dad bod is in and like, really, if you were a girl, would you look at a bunch of men yeah. on a beach and go, do you know what? I really like the guy who's 15 stone and got the massive beer belly. I feel like it's always like, Leonardo DiCaprio has a dad bod. Yeah, because yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> yeah. that's why. Yeah, I'm not Leonardo DiCaprio, man. <laughs> Tom Hardy has a dad bod. That's because yeah. he's Tom Hardy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think, yeah, it's true. I think, obviously, he has some consideration. But I think it probably goes back to, you know, the kind of self-confidence thing. It's like, go to the gym if you want to go to the gym. But don't go to the gym just to change other people's opinions of you, really. Mm. And just finally, mate, what more do we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to. Mm-hmm. I think really, in terms of just improving everyone's mental health as a population, I think it just comes down to education, right? And I think the more we educate ourselves, I think the more acceptance there'll be. And then the more acceptance there is, the more people will feel comfortable to talk about it. And then, you know, the more we talk about it, I think talking about it is the most important thing. If you keep feelings bottled up, it doesn't really do anyone any good. It's really important to talk about it, I think. <laughs> Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of Mind on the Game. I want to say a big thanks to Pat for being my special guest on this episode. These pods are great for me just to see old friends as much as I hope it is enjoyable for you listeners as well. As always, thank you to everyone who's tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling generous, write us a review on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for the next episode of Mind on the Game. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Listener.